So how's that for a music service, huh? Well, I appreciate Elvin and our musicians so much. I want to ask you to take a Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 will be there shortly, but not immediately. Um, in the month of May, towards the end of the month, Teresa, my wife, made an excursion to East Texas. That's becoming a regular thing for her because there are grandchildren who are strategically positioned out there, and uh, she needed a grandchild fix, and so we loaded her up, and she went out there. And one of the pieces of information that I was given as she left was, Mark, I need you to take care of my plants on the back porch. The first service laughed when I said that too. I'm not really sure why, unless you've heard the story by now. But uh, so I faithfully took care of those plants. I stayed out of their way. I didn't do anything that would cause them to, you know, freak out or anything like that. And uh, I did water them. So I don't really know if it was a function of the month of May and early June in West Texas where the temperatures were approaching 100 and maybe a little over 100 in those days or if it was just the end of the life cycle of those particular plants. I don't really know what the deal was, but I, I know that it was the end of the life cycle of those plants as it turned out because um, the day she got back, she went back there and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what she said, but I think it was something along the lines of, well, that didn't work. So here's a truth for you that my responsibility time with those plants bears out. Healthy things grow. If an organism or a plant in this case is fighting for survival and all of its resources go simply to survive, then it's not necessarily a healthy situation and reproduction doesn't fit into the equation. I've found that that's not only true for plants, it's also true for churches. Healthy churches grow. Now, we could spend quite a bit of time talking about what constitutes a healthy church and what constitutes growth, but the reality is that healthy churches grow. Now, I want to take you back about 20 years. Take what I just said, set it off to the side, and we'll return to it several times today. But I want to take you back about 20 years or so. At least that's the first time that I heard this statement. I think I remember the context in which it was spoken. I'm not, I'm not positive about that, but I know that the, that the quote is true because I've heard it many times since then. The quote is, it takes a village. I suppose there's great truth in that. Matter of fact, I've quoted that on numerous occasions. But I think if we're going to say that, then we need to stop for a moment and talk about what some of those words mean. There's only four words in the deal. One of them's only a one-letter word, so that was not too hard. But the word it uh, needs a little bit of explanation. So does the word village. If it takes a village then the question that we should ask is, what does it mean? What is it that the village is trying to pull off? I would suggest to you that when it comes to the health of a church 
and the growth of a church, one of the things that we must have in place is a solid, healthy organism. Now, I'm going to use an interchangeable term here between church or for church, either, either organism, a living thing, or an organization. Uh, both of those apply when it comes to churches and to church work. And so, as we come now to follow up on the passage uh, that we were looking at for about nine weeks or so, eight weeks, I think it was, and that is love works. I want to take what we learned from that, which is applied on a personal basis. My love has to work in these situations. It looks like this. We worked our way through that passage in 1 Corinthians 13. But a good follow-up to that, I think, is how we work. And so as an organism or an organization, as First Baptist Church of El Paso, how do we take the love lessons? Well, let me actually do this. Let me just step back from this for a moment to remind you that I, I today start my 12th month as your pastor. Some of you I know it says, seems like it's been forever. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It, it is such a blessing and an honor for Teresa and I to be here and to minister with you. And over 11 months now, you've heard my first round of series that have all been intended to try to help you understand a little bit of how I think and how I think Scripture teaches us and, and a lot of those things very individually oriented. A lot of you have said, man, you're, you're killing my toes. And I'm, I'm not really sorry about that, but I, you know, I, I do sympathize with you at least. But what I want to do now is I want to take all of those series that we've done and I want to pull them together into this series that will now end my first year and become something of a transition for us as we move into the future. Healthy things grow. Is that true of churches? I think it is. But how do we get to that point? Because growth probably needs a lot of explanation. We could talk numerical growth, and usually in church growth circles, you start talking about church growth. That's what people have in mind. But you know, some of the best growth that occurs in the church happens individually in each one of those pew spots. As you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, as you understand more of what the Bible teaches us about how to do life and about who God is and his love for us, and as all of those things begin to take root in us, as Jesus said to those he was working with, uh, go make disciples. And as we make disciples, we will begin to see this interior growth in each one of us who are applying ourselves into that. Healthy things grow. And so a healthy, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ will cause you to grow individually. But a lot of what I want to do is to take this and look at us corporately for the next couple of months. The title of the series is Guidelines. And here's the basic idea. We need guidelines in the community life that we have. Because as we work those things, by the way, as we work our way through this, and I'll give you five, eight, maybe, depending on how much time we have, uh, I'm not going to say any one of those things that's not already part of the life of this church one place or another. This is not a preacher's mad at everybody uh, series. This is one of those things that helps us to nail down on an individual basis and then corporately also. These are the pieces that will help us be healthy. You see, I happen to believe that the best days of this church are not behind us but they are before us somewhere. 
But I also believe that they're not just going to happen, that we as a church body have to double down, have to settle into who we are and the values and those things that will guide us. So the guidelines that we will be looking at over the next couple of months are those big truths that help us to understand how we do life together. You know, well, I could term this family values if you wanted me to use that term, might communicate a little bit better for you. We all teach family values, whether you know you do or not. Your kids grew up through your house. They grew up learning some things. Like here's one that we taught our kids, don't bite. (laughs) Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? But you know, that was one of those family values that I never really put a whole lot of thought to until my daughter came home from the church nursery one day, not this church, but came home from the church nursery one day and somebody else's kid in the church didn't have that family value. And so our music minister's daughter caused me to teach my kids a family value, we don't bite. You know, don't you, that a lot of churches never got that value. A lot of churches have people who populate the church who make a habit out of biting other people. They don't really use their teeth. They just use their mouths. See, family values matter. And we have to dig down into them sometimes. And so here's another one for you, one that, uh, that we had to teach our kids. We don't make fun of people. Is that one of your family values? Do your family, well, never mind. Let me just move on because that gets a little too personal. If you're still not sure what I'm talking about with the family values things, go online, Google the lyrics for Tim McGraw's most recent really popular song, and you'll hear some family values that were pushed out to them. Let me ask you here for us. What are the family values of First Baptist Church of El Paso? What are those truths that we draw down on and we drill down into that provide something of the bedrock for who we are and how we relate with people? First Baptist, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 gives us a little bit of an insight from the Apostle Paul because Paul is writing to a church that was getting their guidelines totally wrong. The value system that they had in place in those house churches in first century Corinth were terrible. They were eating each other up in that church. They were treating each other like they didn't really matter in that church. And so the Apostle Paul writes into that situation to challenge their thinking and to challenge their value systems that they had adopted. So we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read that in just a moment, but let me just go ahead and throw this one out. We'll get to it later anyway, so let me just get it on the table. Paul uses a velvet brick with these people. You know what a velvet brick is? It's when somebody throws a brick at you and it hits you in the head, it hurts, right? A velvet brick just doesn't hurt immediately. It's going to hurt before it's over with, but the, when the velvet hits you, it's nice and soft and all that, but it's still got a brick in it. That's kind of what Paul's doing here because as he writes, he begins by stating these values that they're supposed to have that they really don't have, and so he writes it in such a way that it ultimately opens the door for him to discuss a few things later. We begin reading in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we go with the velvet brick. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Let me just stop and highlight this. In all speech and knowledge was one of the problems that they had because they were talking to each other and handling themselves in a way that communicated something totally different than what Paul here is giving thanks for. Paul knows truth and he stands in truth. And he highlights their problems by stating the truth. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Let me stop for a minute and say one of the problems they had was they had this competition for who had the greatest spiritual gifts. We keep reading. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we work our way through this message that now sets up the series that we will go through the rest of the summer, three words come to the surface that we need to grip. The first one I've used several times already. It's the word values. Our dictionary defines values this way. It is a person's principles or standards of behavior represents one judgment of what is important in life. I will say it this way. Your values guide the way you interact with the world around you. What is that set of values that are yours or ours as a church? You'll have them. Let me ask you this as a point of information. Do you recycle? Now, you know in our city that they give you two different trash bins. You, hello? You, you do know that? <laughs> do you use two or do you use one? Now, don't answer that out loud because I answered it out loud in the first service, and one of our city fathers caught me at the back and said, on behalf of our city, let me invite you to please recycle. <laughs> it was in good spirit and fun. But here's the deal. My generation and those before us, we grew up in a time where recycling wasn't really much of an emphasis. But in the generations that are coming now, it's one of those big things. Environmental awareness is a big thing for us. Even in theological studies, the theology of environmental awareness is a big topic in upper levels of theological education. I know that because the church I served before I came out here uh, we called a, a youth minister, and he was probably late 20s, early 30s when he got there. And he came in, and the first day on the job, first day in the office, he walked into the office where we were all gathered for a staff meeting. His first question was, so where do we go to recycle around here? There's a room full of old people. None of us knew what recycle even meant, much less where to go to get it done. If you do... That's because it's a value to you. If you don't, that's because it's a value to you. Again, the definition, a person's principles or standard of behavior. Let's take it off of that and put it on something that hits every one of us a little more directly. How do you handle your money? Do you spend 
freely, as if there's a money pump somewhere that just pumps it out and you can put it in your wallet? Or are you on the other side of that spectrum and your value is that you save ferociously? You do realize, don't you, that one of the main reasons for marriages to fail is because a husband and a wife have different values on money. Values are important. They're part of the everyday lives that we live. Part of the, I'll give you a couple of family values at the road trams. I used this one last week, as a matter of fact, uh, and some of you, I think, maybe got it. I'm not sure. So we were talking about forgiveness last year, last week, and one of our road travel family values was forgive and forget, but always remember. <laughs> not necessarily biblical and certainly not very Christ-like, but a value nonetheless. Here was another one. This is the one that uh, I really need to remind you of based on some conversations I've had today. Okay? Uh, when it comes to practical jokes and stuff like that, here's a road trammel family value. If you squirt me with your water gun, I'm going to run over you with my truck. <laughs> I don't even have a truck yet, but I'll get one. I used to be a youth minister. I know how those practical jokes go. You see, the reality is that values... Uh, stake out ground on which we will relate with each other. It, it's, it's the values in our communities that determine how we're going to live with one another and how we're going to treat each other. My brother, I remember vividly a conversation he had in front of me. It was with his son, who was a teenager at the time. And I don't remember what Eric had done, but I remember like yesterday watching my brother get right up in his face and say, let me tell you something, Eric, you're a road trammel and road trammels don't do. And then he said what he had done. Family values. Some of them are unwritten and subtle. Some of them are in your face, but we have values. What are the values that stake out for First Baptist Church how we relate, not just with each other, but also with the world around us. If we're to be healthy, well, let me just say this. I think we're already healthy, so I don't want you to get the wrong impression about this. This is not a series where the preacher's mad and trying to get us. I, I think it's just one of those things. We're at a point in the life of our church now as a pastor having been here almost a year where I think it's time for me. I, I can start settling in now saying, okay, who are we going to be? How are we going to do this? What are the values that we are going to operate from? And I don't think that we're ill or sick or anything like that, but I think if we're going to be healthy enough to really grow, we need to nail some of these things down. So we're going to take a couple of months, and we're going to look at things like a value, for instance, that says people matter. So we need to treat them like they matter. Not just a few people, not just people like me, not just people who I like, but people matter. We'll deal with other values like, if in doubt, trust. I'm purposely waiting for that one to sink in because we live in a society that's founded on distrust anymore. You just watch 30 minutes of national news and look at the amount of distrust that's out there. It's becoming rampant in our society. And if we as a people inside the church can't live in trust of one another, something's up, something's wrong. It's not healthy. 
Paul writes this letter of correction because there were values that were in place in the Corinthian church that was not healthy, and it was stunting their growth. In fact, it was killing them. And so let me just give you a couple of those. I stopped reading in verse 9, but let's pick up in verse 10 because the value he addresses here is a me first and a me only kind of value. And it is, he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brother, excuse me, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. One of the problems that they had was they were stratified economically, but also according to personality. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. And then he goes on to say, some of you say, well, I follow Paul. And others say, well, I follow Simon Peter. And the really religious ones say, well, I follow Jesus. And Paul says in that church scenario where you're marked by division, your value system is wrong. Me first or me and mine as opposed to anybody else is not healthy. And it was killing their witness in that pagan community. We could go over to verse, verses 21 and 22 of chapter 11 which is where we find this. This is now where Paul is talking to them about the way they do their Lord's Supper services. Now, ours is a service. It's an hour and it's over with, but theirs were day-long feasts. Matter of fact, in the first century, they were called love feasts. And it went like this. They would have it at somebody's house. They didn't have churches like we have. And so they would have it at somebody's house by definition to handle the number of people in that church. It had to be someone with a little bit of substance, so they had a house big enough to handle people. And so they would have it there, and then they would start it sometime in the mid-afternoon. That's all well and good if you owned your own business in first century Corinth because you could shut down shop and go to this place, and you could be part of this love feast, Lord's Supper kind of a thing. Uh, but those people who were of the lower strata economically had to work until their boss said they could shut down the shop. And so then Paul writes into that. Look at verses 21 and 22, chapter 11. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. He's talking about those people who get there early. One goes hungry. That's the people who get late. Another gets drunk, the people who got there early. Now, that doesn't happen in our church. Okay, our value system is we're not going to get drunk at the Lord's Supper unless just regular grape juice, you know, I mean, I don't, well, anyway, that's another thing. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, or here's the key, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you then? Shall I commend you for this? No. Their, had, their value system said me first. Their value system said people don't matter unless they're people that matter to me. And so Paul writes, and he helps them see the net effect of that internally was unhealthiness and externally was a killed witness in a pagan society. They were no different than anybody else. And so Paul writes to say, we're going to overhaul your value system. So being unhealthy makes for sick churches. I've already said I don't believe that ours is unhealthy but I believe that we're always just one or two key decisions away from becoming unhealthy. 
one or two conversations that can be had even in the middle of a church service or in a parking lot or something like that. Two people, leaders in the church who can't get along or won't get along because their value systems are competing, all of a sudden becomes a cancer that eats its way through the heart of a church. We have to know what our values are. And so as we work forward, we'll work through some of those things. Those always have to grow out of Scripture. Scripture becomes our guidepost as we work out those values. Here's the second word. I'm going to run out of time if I don't keep moving. First word is values. The second word is identity. Here's how the dictionary defines that one. It is that set of characteristics by which a person or a thing is recognized or known. We need to be careful here because it's easy for us to switch out in our heads and to confuse uh, reputation with identity. Now, I've mentioned more than once in this service already, I'm finishing up a first year. So this time last year, I was in the tail end process with your committee as it related to coming here in view of a call to become your pastor. And that process had started in January, and it was very intentional, driven by the committee on behalf of the church, very intentional from the church's side to look at this pastor and his wife and ask the question, will this work? What is this guy's value system? What is this guy's identity? What is this guy's reputation? You should know that as they were doing that on me, I was doing that on you. And so I made phone calls around the state. It ended up being mostly key denominational leaders who knew something about First Baptist Church of El Paso. And during that search process for me, it started in January and went all the way through the end of May, uh, actually even beyond that, as I'll say in a minute. But in that process, as I worked my way from one conversation with a key leader to another, here's what I heard on a consistent basis. Never was anything other than this said in one way or another, and that is that is an incredible church. Oh, that's one, one of my ex-professors said, Mark, that's, that's one of the jewels of Texas Baptist life that church is. I would submit to you as uh, affirming as that should be for us as a church, that's reputation talk. That's not identity talk. Well, reputation's important. Your reputation mattered to me coming in. You know, some churches have the reputation of being man-eating churches. And this pastor not interested in getting eaten anytime soon. So I wanted to make sure that that wasn't who this church was. The reputation of First Baptist Church El Paso, even, you know, historically, a little ups and downs. Every church has that kind of thing. But overall, the reputation of our church has been exceedingly strong. But still not our identity. Who are we? I would submit to you that if we don't know who we are, it's impossible for us to be healthy going forward. So who are we? For me to figure out identity took on a little more um, of, a, of a challenge. So I started working and figuring out who First Baptist Church of El Paso is. I got a hold of Dick Clark, who was chairman of that search committee, and I said, are there any books that I can read that will help me understand who this church is? And so through the office. You sent me two different books, and I had the chance to read those before I ever came out here in view of a call. 
But you know, the reality is that as I began to drill down a little bit on who our identity is, uh, we were here well into that process. And so for 11 months, I've been still trying to figure out who this church is. If you were to get stopped in the parking lot today by somebody who's interested in coming to this church and said, so tell me who the church is, how would you answer that? Reputation's one thing, but identity is different. Reputation changes sometimes like the wind blows. But identity has to be forged into the bedrock of who this church is. So part of the problem with the Corinthian church was they got their identity all wrong. So Paul writes to correct that. I can take you back into that that we've already read and show you a few things together, but I'm going to move on with that. Let me just say it this way. Let's go to what Jesus says. Because when you get right down to it, I don't get to decide. Even as pastor of this church, I don't get to decide what our identity is. Well, I can do a lot to impact our reputation, either positively or negatively, but I don't get a say in who we are. You know how Jesus said it? Matthew chapter 5, I'm not going to go read it, I'm just going to give you the gist of it all. In Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, which is the sum total of what a disciple life looks like in compact form, that sermon is. Jesus says, you, his disciples, are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Those are identity statements. Paul later in 2 Corinthians will say it this way, for you are ambassadors for Christ. That's our identity. Now, we need to be careful that we understand this. Are we living up to that identity? As a church or as an individual Christian, are we living to that identity, or have we possibly come up with our own identification and we live to that instead? See, our values matter at this point. If, you know, there's a lot of talk in our society these days about identifying as something. So let me just play this little game with you. Let's say that I identify myself as a car. Now, does that make me a car? Makes me nuts is what it really does, but that's another discussion. Might be that anyway. But if I identify as a car, and in my head I convince myself that I'm a car, I convince myself so much that I'm a car that I go home in the evenings and I lay down in the middle of the garage and sleep there because that's where cars sleep. Or I could even worse than that, I could convince myself, identifying as a car, that when I get to the office every day of the week, I'm going to go out on that parking lot and I'm going to lay down on that asphalt between those two painted lines because that's where cars stay during the day. I can convince myself all day long that I'm a car, but that doesn't make me a car. Right? All right, that's right. Okay, some of you are not sure about that, but that's right. Here's how that applies in. As God's people, we can convince ourselves that we're something other than what he says we are. And we can even adopt a value system that supports what we say we are. 
doesn't change our identity. We don't get to choose our identity. Jesus has already chosen that for us. So in other words, we don't just get to choose whatever values we want. We have to have values that match who he says we are. So we're going to look at that in the next few weeks or so. We're salt, and we're light, and we're ambassadors for Christ. And if we're going to be and continue to be a healthy church, we have to claim that identity because it's already written for us. Here's the last one. I'm about out of time. I'll make this one quick. The last word, first one was what? Values. Second one was identity. The third one is culture. The values that we choose shape community life. That's the culture that we have. Here's the definition of culture. It is the set of predominating attitudes and behavior that characterize a group or an organization. As we affirm our identity, who Jesus says we are, and we adopt a series of values that fit that, then over a period of time, it begins to overhaul the culture that we have as we live day to day together. Teresa and I, in about 12 hours, are going to begin a week-long experiment in cultural adaptation. I'll say that again. I want you to get it, and then you'll understand when I give you how that's going to happen. In about 12 hours, we're going to begin a week-long experiment in cultural adaptation. Let me say it a different way. My daughter and her husband and two kids are coming to see us for a week. <laughs> You've gotten fair warning now. You have time to lock up your valuables and all of that, but here's, here's what I mean by that. You see, I learned this truth about 10 years ago when our oldest son got married. And then I've seen it through the course of time as our other kids got married and then they started having kids. And uh, here's what happened. I'm going to use my daughter as the example. Now, Lauren knows the right way to live, okay? She grew up in our family. What we believe is a road trammel identity that's colored, you know, by the cross, obviously. And uh, pastor's home, we taught her how to function and all that, the values and the culture that was built. And then she had a brain cramp and went out and married this guy, this intruder, into our family culture. And so John, I love John to death. You just need to know I'm playing it up a little bit here, but I love John to death. But I want you to know the day he stepped into our family life, everything changed because he didn't get the same kind of cultural Upbringing, the same values necessarily that we have. Some of them are the same. There's good overlap there, enough for them to have a good, healthy marriage. But John doesn't do things like we do. He's wrong. <laughs> but he's coming to my house, and he's going to have control of the TV changer because at his house, that's what he gets to do. And so I'll promise you, I'll walk in at the end of the work day. I'll go home, and he'll be sitting there, and he'll be watching what he wants to watch. And I won't ever get to watch what I want to watch this week. It's terrible. No, it's not. Okay, I, I go there 
for us to make sure that we understand this truth. A church is much like that that I just explained, especially a healthy church. Because people are drawn to life. Let me tell you, that's a huge statement, and I'll take probably years to flesh that out for us as we go. People are drawn to life. And so healthy things grow. And so as a church begins to get its values straight that are based and tied directly to its identity, as that begins to happen, it's healthy. It's more healthy. And it begins to grow because people are drawn to life. And with every person who comes into the life of a church, you have that intruder thing I was talking about with my son-in-law. Okay? John's a great guy, loves the Lord, studied to be a minister. I love him, and he loves my daughter, and I couldn't ask for anything better than that. He's just different, and he makes us better. And so as a church, as we grow and we see people come, and we're seeing that these days, as we see that, we just have to recognize that it changes the culture. With every person who comes in, they have a different way of seeing things, a different way of thinking about things, and everybody gets a voice. Let me say that again. Everybody gets a voice. But that scares us sometimes because they're different. They're intruders. So it just makes it that much more important that we settle on our values. Because we want people to come in. We want to give people a voice. We want to see growth occur individually and as a group. But we don't just do anything in order to grow. We have to be consistent with our values. And as we're holding to our values, it builds a culture around us that is healthy and moves us forward. Paul writes the entire book of 1 Corinthians addressing their values based on their identity in order to change the culture. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at our values, our guidelines, that's the title of the series, that will help us be healthy. Because I believe healthy things grow. Let's pray. And as we pray, let me just invite you to personalize this message today. You know, it's possible that some of us are just flying through life kind of blindly. We have a general direction and we have general beliefs, but uh, we didn't really stop to think too much about who we are and how we live. Jesus is very clear about that. If you know him as your Savior, then he has set your identity. And everything needs to fall in line underneath that. That may cause you to need to do a little soul searching, a little evaluation of your life to see if some of that needs to change. We'll help with that if you need us to. It may be that Jesus is not part of your life at all and you're tired of the fight that that brings. So maybe today's a good day for you to settle into the offer that he gives you for real life. A life that is one back from the penalty of sin. Maybe that's what we need to talk about today. Whatever it is that God's dealing with you about today, somewhere in the midst of that is the identity question. Are you his? Do you know him? Have you had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ? That's the first part of the invitation. If you don't, if you haven't had that, then why not today? Why not today? Father, we ask that you would move among us today.
change our lives, transform us where we are guilty of stinking thinking. We pray that you would help us to see that and conform to the identity that you've given us, the values that you lay out for us. Change lives today is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. You come.